well, on March 1st, 1950, Westside Baptist Church was having a, a choir practice. Walter Klempel, his wife, and his daughter, Marilyn Ruth, were about to leave uh, to be there at 7.20 when the practice started. When Marilyn Ruth noticed that she had a ghastly stain on her dress, uh, and so her mother found another dress for her to quickly change into, but it needed ironing. And so her mom ironed, and Pastor Klempel waited patiently, exercising the things that he had preached on for all those years, and resigned himself to the fact that they would be a few minutes late to choir practice. It wasn't the end of the world, because a number of the other people uh, who were attending had keys to the church. Uh, one of them was Ms. Marilyn Paul. She was the pianist. Uh, she usually arrived 30 minutes early and opened the church anyway so that she could practice. Uh, but her mother, who was the choir director, um, tried to wake her because she had a nap and overslept. For some reason, she was just particularly tired that day, and her mom tried to rouse her from sleep several times and eventually managed to drag her out of bed only five minutes before the practice would start. It would take her another 10 minutes to get ready, and she would be late for practice. Two high school girls, Lucille Jones and Dorothy Wood, always went together to choir practice. And one evening, Lucille was captivated by a story that was being told on the radio and wanted to hear the end of it, and so uh, made her sister wait for her, and they waited another 10 minutes and finished the story and quickly hurried off to choir practice. They would be a few minutes late as well. Then two sisters, Rowena and Sadie Estes, they left early for practice, but when they tried to do so, their car wouldn't start. And so they called a friend who was also going. Her name was Ladona Vandergrift. She was always early for practice, and so she offered to give them a ride. Um, but she wanted to finish a geometry problem that she was working on that was due the next day for a math homework. And in doing so, she lost track of time. And so she was a few minutes late to pick them up as well. They would all end up being late for the practice. Herbert Kipp was writing a letter to the Baptist denomination headquarters. He wanted to mail it on his way back home from choir practice. And he just wanted to make sure it was just right. And so he was running a little bit late himself. Mr. Harvey L. had gotten to talking to his two sons while Mrs. Schuster stopped at her mother's house on the way and got delayed while helping her elderly mom prepare. As for Joyce Black, she was feeling, quote, just plain lazy that day and had procrastinated until she too was running late. So 7.20 came and went and no one showed up for choir practice. Everyone was running a little bit late. Five minutes later at 7.25 p.m., a gas leak ignited and the entire church building exploded. There was nothing left of the structure. The explosion was of such force that all of the neighboring buildings lost their windows, which they were shattered, and a nearby radio station also lost its service because of the size of this explosion. No one was hurt. Coincidence? I think not. Years later, in an interview, one of the survivors, Mr. Herbert Kipf, said, if this had been a busload of people stopped by a flat tire or any such occurrence, it might be considered a coincidence. But where you have 15 people scattered throughout the entire city, each of them detained by some trivial little thing, each different thing, it can't be coincidence. Well, if it's not coincidence, then what is it? 
one of the other uh, choir members, the pianist Marilyn Paul, she said, I believe that night, and no one will convince me otherwise, that God didn't want us there. We were spared, and I'm very grateful. What do you think? Do you think she's right? I think she's right. I think she believes in uh, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and a specific aspect of it, which is what we're going to examine this morning, called providence. We're going to meet another lady who believes in providence. So turn your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled, Ruth chapter 2. We have seen, as we've been going through chapter 1, um, the, the tragedy that struck this family of Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Remember that during the days that the judges ruled, the book of Judges, there's this moral and spiritual darkness in the land because each person does what is right in their own eyes. And uh, there's no king in Israel. And so people really don't know how to please God and they end up doing terrible things like Jephthah sacrificing his daughter and Samson doing all sorts of things we're about to find out in the evening service um, and thinking that they're doing God's will when they're not. But here we have, in the book of Ruth, a little snapshot of normality, a little biosphere, a little uh, enclosed um, town where people know the word of God and are obeying the word of God, and we see how they function with the word of God. Now, Elimelech wanted to escape the famine that was on um, the land of Israel, probably during the time of Gideon. It was that famine that came from the Midianites. And so he tries to escape the judgment of God by moving to Moab, Israel's sworn enemies. It doesn't work. He dies, his sons die, and he leaves his widow, Naomi, and their daughters, uh, their, the son's wives, you know, the daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And Naomi then finds out that the famine is lifted, God has visited Israel with food, and so she wants to go back, and she tells her daughters-in-law, listen, you can't come with me because no one's going to look after me if I have you with me, and no one's going to look after you, you're not even Jews, and so go back to your people and your gods, and Orpah does exactly that. But Ruth makes this tremendous statement of commitment to Naomi, to her people, the Jews, and also to Yahweh himself. Where you go, I will go, and there I will be buried. Your people, my people, your God, my God. And she makes this commitment, and she goes with Naomi back to Israel, casting herself on the sovereignty of God. There is absolutely no plan. There's no contingency. There's no insurance. She's just saying, if God wants this to work, it's going to work. And I'm just committing, you always side with Yahweh, right? That was our takeaway from last week's sermon. You always side with God. And that's where we find ourselves. And now we get into chapter 2. And I just want to give you a vocab word for chapter 2 in case you're not familiar with it. We don't use it a lot these days, but it's the word to glean. Gleaning, to glean means to collect the leftovers. So that's going to come up. And I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's just such a great story. Remember, we said, you know, if, um, if Exodus is an epic and Judges is a horror story, uh, then Ruth is the chick flick of the Old Testament. And so here we see a bit of, see a bit of the rom-com meet-cute happening, um, as it usually does. Okay, uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. It's just the introduction to the story. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, 
Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, well, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now, listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Haven't I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me now that you left your father how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before Yahweh repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by Yahweh the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge and then she said I have found favor in your eyes my lord for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her uh, roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. Give her a little extra. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, uh, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Very cute. Very cute. We're going to see today two ways that God takes care of us so that you will learn to trust in him as well. Two ways that God takes care of us, takes care of his people. So we'll learn to trust in him. And one is that God's will is revealed in his law, and the other one is that God's will is revealed in providence. You you could even say this is God's provision through his law and God's provision through providence. And I want you to see how God sets up his world in such a way to provide for his people. And he does it in these two ways. So let's first look at God's will revealed in his law or his provision for us through his revelation. Verse 1 says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was 
Boaz. This is a little introductory statement, but it is packed with anticipation. This is the, the little preamble. The rest of the story comes under the umbrella that Naomi has a relative. Now, remember, I've taught you this in the past, that if, somebody's, if somebody died, if a man died, his wife became the responsibility of the nearest male kin. And that person was called the Redeemer. He was the one that would, in a sense, buy this widow out of her poverty, and he would need to provide for her. And she didn't have one of those in Moab, and she comes back, and really, no one has any obligation to her because, you know, she left over 10 years ago. And now she shows up and she's got this Moabite who isn't even Jewish and so doesn't really have any um, claim on what's going on here. But they just show up. Now, last week, we dealt with the question, why? This week, we're going to deal with the question, how? Why is the question people ask whenever there's a tragedy? Uh, Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Kilion dies, they're, they're left there, there's this famine, they don't know what to do, and, and we want to ask, why? Why do bad things happen to God's people? And that's what we looked at last week, and really the conclusion we came up with is that that's not the right question, really. The, the question isn't why, but who? And the answer is God. God is in control of all things. And so what the, the, one of the main themes in the book of Ruth that we've been looking at is the theme of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty, if you'll remember, is the doctrine that teaches that God is in charge of everything, the great sweep of history as well as the minute details. And so that is the sovereignty of God, and that's what we see working out here. So why do bad things happen? Because God is in control, and he ordains and orders that these things happen for a higher purpose that he does not reveal to us, as we've been seeing in the book of Job. We know the purpose of the book of Job, but Job never does. He's just told by God, let's just remember who's in control. So that's what we've been dealing with. But now we want to look at not why, but how. If God is in control, even of the minor details of life, what does that look like? How does he get involved in our lives? Sovereignty is... We've, we kind of called it learning to trust in management. You know, our management is good. Our management is competent. You sometimes just need to bear under the experiment and, and wait till management steps in and injects oxygen into the system, right? As we looked at the biosphere. That's sovereignty. But now there's a new doctrine that I want to introduce you to called providence. Providence is an outworking of sovereignty. And that's our second point that we're going to look at in some more detail. But Providence is the mechanism by which God enacts his sovereignty. So we said God is sovereign over every minor detail. Sparrows don't die without God's involvement. Your hair doesn't go from black to gray without God's involvement. It doesn't fall off your head without God's involvement. We know that from what Jesus says. But how? How does this work? Well... The way it's going to play out here is how does God provide for Ruth, this Moabite widow? How is she going to survive in Israel? How is he going to give her the food that she needs to eat? Is it through a, a jar of oil that never runs out miraculously? Is it through uh, ravens that bring her food as what happened with Elijah? Is it with a quail and manna like the, the Israelites were provided? Those are all ways that God provided. But what, what do those ways have in common? The jar of oil... You know, the ravens that bring him food in the famine, 
the quail that show up to be captured and the manna that just appears in the ground. Well, those are miracles. And miracles is one way that God is involved in his creation, but it's not a very common one. And we know that from the book of Ruth, this is a snapshot of normality. There isn't a single miracle in this book. There's no direct revelation, a, a prophecy or a, uh, an angel that comes into this book. This is just normal life, a snapshot of normality. So the first of the two ways that God provides, the first of the two ways that he reveals his will that enables us to be provided for is in Deuteronomy 24. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. He provides for us by his will, by revealing his will to us. Now, a lot of Christians don't really know the first five books of their Bible very well. It seems boring at times. It seems pedantic and detailed, all the laws and that type of thing, especially in like the book of Deuteronomy. But that's because you're looking for the wrong thing. You might be reading these Old Testament laws looking for a way to live, and that's going to be confusing because this was written for the way the Israelites were to live while they were bound by that covenant which was fulfilled in Christ, and we're no longer under that. That's why we can wear polyester and mixed fabrics. That's why we can have pork sandwiches and uh, shrimp, which they couldn't have. We're not under that law anymore, but they were. So if you're reading the first five books of the Bible to figure out how to live, it can be confusing. What you should be reading is, what is God like? See, God revealed his character and his design through his law. And so we learn more about God, the way he wanted his people to live during that time, how he wanted them to be separate and holy, than we do about actually how to live, the specifics of how to live ourselves. Now, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 19, we see something about God through his law. And this is how you want to read the book of Deuteronomy. Look at what can you tell about God through his law. Let me read for you verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. That's the law. It shall be for the sojourner, that's an immigrant, the fatherless, that's an orphan, and the widow. Why? that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather your grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So this isn't telling you how to deal with the little olive tree in your backyard. We've got a little olive tree we planted, and it's starting to to make little olives, and when I shake it to get the olives, if there's some left over, I'm not going to say, oh, well, there's Deuteronomy 24, I can't shake it again, because there's no immigrants in my backyard that I'm aware of. Um, but I guess we're the immigrants in our backyard, so we're allowed it. Okay, there you go, I'll shake it again, I can have it. I'm a sojourner. But anyway, uh, this you don't read Deuteronomy to figure out how you live directly, but you can see what do we hear about the character of God in what he says about how to shake your olive trees and how to leave the sheaths from your, your gleanings. You're collecting the field and you notice some drop behind you. Don't go back for them. Just get, get the majority of your crop and the little, the, the little parts that fall out, just leave them there. Why? So that the orphans can eat them. So that the widows can come get them. So that the, the immigrants who aren't part of the economic system yet have something to eat. What do you learn about God? 
God is gracious. He's compassionate. He, God has a heart for the vulnerable. That's what you learn. He has a special provision in his law for the people who aren't part of the, the normal structure of the economy as it's set up. So he builds into the law of Israel and their economy this provision that says, I want you, as a faithful follower of me, to take a small financial knock so that other people that have not been as blessed materially as you have can eke out a living. I don't want you to squeeze every last cent of profit out of your business at the expense of poor people. I want you to be okay with taking a financial knock. Why? So that the Lord your God may bless you and the work of your hands. To prove to the world that when you are gracious and compassionate and generous and willing to sacrifice and take a financial knock on my behalf, that I will bless you even more. Now, there are businesses that refuse to open on a Sunday so that their employees can go to church. I would submit to you that if they're doing it for this reason, God will take care of them and their profits will not go down. You can go and Google that and see what I'm talking about. Go to Leviticus chapter 23. Go backwards one book. Leviticus 23. He gets even more specific here. On how to have compassion for the foreigners and widows like Ruth. Leviticus 23 verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. See how God always ends this command for you to take your little financial knock with a reminder, who's in charge around here? I'm your provision. You don't need every last cent of your business to live a godly life. What you need is me. And you obey me, and I'll make sure you never lack. And this is a testimony to the world of my grace, and this is a testimony of your faith. And the wonderful blessing, the upshot of all of that, is that poor people get taken care of too. And for some reason, that's really important to God. And what's that reason? Because he's gracious. Because he's compassionate. And so we learn a lot about him by these laws. And so if I had to ask you, what is the mechanism that God is going to use to provide for Ruth, who is an immigrant, a sojourner, and a widow in the land of Israel? The answer is, through his revealed will in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, that his people who know his will and are doing what he says and are obeying it will voluntarily leave some of their profits for her to live off of. And that's exactly what we see happen in the book of Ruth. Go back to the Ruth chapter 2. What this might look like today if we had this kind of attitude is um, 
So if you go to Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge area, there's a, there's a, a store there that's the Nike um, factory outlet surplus store. It's not like a normal, you know, Tangers outlet. It's more like um, it's the stock that has not been sold of, of certain items gets put there and then it gets sold at a huge discount, like, you know, 80% off or whatever. Um, and so we went there and we looked around and, you know, when you've got four kids and they do all sorts of sports, there's tennis and there's cross country. And I mean, it's just like there's every, you need, you need like a plethora of shoes to survive. And so I thought this is going to be great. But even with the discount, it's still pretty pricey. And uh, that, kind of what's happening there is they've, they've put their stock in their stores and people have picked through it for months and all the dregs that are left behind, you know, the size 16 shoe <laughs> that nobody's going to buy um, or whatever it is, the ones that have little problems so that they, they get funneled to this place and get sold again to try to squeeze every last cent out of their products. Now, if you're a shareholder of Nike, that's what you want because you want every last cent so that your dividends might go up. But if you were a single mom who's working three jobs and has four kids and they show promise at cross country and tennis and football and you need cleats and you need running shoes, wouldn't it be nice to be able to just go to that factory store and just take a pair of shoes for your kids? So, Nike, if they wanted to be a little bit more biblical, would make that stuff available. But there's a little caveat. Ruth isn't just going to the store and picking up groceries. What did the young men say about her to Boaz? She came here when? From early in the morning. And she's been working the whole day. And he specifically says, except for a short rest. She just takes like a short water break and gets back to work. Ruth's not asking for a handout. And what's so great about the system that God puts in place is that it's, you get to keep your dignity as a poor person. Yes, his will provides for you, but you still have to work for it. It's just putting a little bit more in reach. Maybe you can't get a full-time job. Maybe there's, there's too many employees already. They're not going to hire anyone else. You're unemployed. You still need to work for it, but it's just it's putting it in your grasp. If you're willing to wake up early and go and sweat and take a short break, you're going to have enough food. I think that there's something really precious about that. The, the mindset that we should help people who, who want to work wherever you can. You know, South Africa has a 60% unemployment rate, and when we were there, we often would get people knocking on the door asking for handouts, you know, and, and people come with real needs. I remember there was this one kid, the first time he knocked on our door, and he said, I, he was there barefoot, and he said, I need school shoes to go to school. I can't go to school without, because I asked him, why are you in the, here in the middle of the day? He, he was just asking for a handout, for food or whatever. I said, why are you here in the middle of the day? Shouldn't you be in school? I've got food at school. No, I'm not allowed to go to school because I, I don't have school shoes. That's a legitimate issue. That's a very common problem in South Africa. You're not allowed to go to the school unless you have a uniform. And if you can't afford the uniform, you can't go to school. So I said to him, what if I buy you school shoes? And he said, then I'll go to school. So I said, this is fantastic because I have a problem and you have a problem. You don't have school shoes and I have a lawn full of weeds. 
And he was like, I'll pull the weeds. So I said, go for it. So I gave him a little bag, and he spent the, you know, whatever it was. And it was hot outside. It was like an hour or so of pulling all these weeds, and he brought me the big bag, and I, I gave him money for school shoes, and he went and bought school shoes. And what was different is, for that kid, he gets to go to school wearing school shoes that he bought with money that he earned by doing actual work. There was a gap in the market. So I, I feel like that's the way that we can apply what we're learning here, is that you, you want to help people, you want to be generous. I mean, I could have picked those weeds myself and kept the money, but I wanted to bless the kid, but I didn't want to rob him of dignity. And that's what's happening with Ruth. This is how God is providing for his people. He's got such a brilliant method in place. She gets to work and provide for her in-law, and yet she ends up with this ephra of Bali at the end. She's got enough to take care of them for a couple of days, and... Naomi's like, Wait, wherever you went, that's where you need to go. Because, and what, what she didn't know is that Boaz had been telling his guys, hey, I want you to drop some of the stuff on purpose. <laughs> Make sure she has more than enough so that tomorrow she doesn't go to a different field. In fact, I'll just tell her, different fields are dangerous. The guys out there, you're going to get different, you don't want to go, that's a bad neighborhood. All the other fields are bad neighborhoods. Come to my field, the guys will take care of you. Lunchtime, you need a place to sit? I kept you a seat here at the lunch table. I mean, this is the meat cute, you know. He's impressed by her. What's he, what about her is impressive? Well, he gets the report in verse 7 that she's worked hard. And in verse 8 he says, I, I want you to stay here. Um, but what impresses her, him about her is what he heard about her. That she looked after her mother-in-law. And that the Lord's going to repay you. Um, in verse 11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your land for our land. And may Yahweh repay you for what you've done. So he is, he is putting himself as the channel of God's provision. And he knows to do this because of the law that's been revealed. So she obeys, and she gets provided, and it's not through a miracle. It's through the law of God. And so the application for us is, as we read the Bible and we learn about who God is and what God wants, we need to look for ways in our life that we can reflect the character of God through our dealing with people. And, and one of the great ways of doing it is find vulnerable people in your life, don't worry, God will bring them into your life and see what you can do in your context that shows you are a follower of a God who is gracious and compassionate. And the more you know your Bible, the more you're going to know what he's like. And the more you know your Bible, the more you're going to see these laws and be able to apply them. Because compare what's happening here in the little town of Bethlehem, a little snapshot of normality, this little biosphere of godliness, compared to the rest of Israel, where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. You go read the book of Judges, and you say, why is this man sacrificing his daughter? Why is this man marrying a Philistine? Why is this man chopping his concubine up into 12 pieces and FedExing her all over the country? The answer is, because they don't know what the Lord wants. And you know who else doesn't know what the Lord wants? Everyone sitting here today who doesn't read their Bible. 
you know a little bit more because you're sitting there and I'm telling you what some of it says. But the more you read, the more you know. And so people want to please God, but they don't even know where to start. And so they think they're being compassionate, they think they're being patient, they think they're being tolerant and forgiving and accepting of all lifestyles or whatever, but what they don't realize is that God has revealed what is acceptable to Him, and the most loving thing you can do is show that to someone. But you don't know if you don't read. So, application point of every sermon, read your Bible more. That's point number one. But there's another mechanism by which God provides for us. God's will revealed in providence. So we saw God's will revealed in his law and God's will revealed in providence. Because back to verse 1, it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, that's her husband, whose name was Boaz. So here we meet Boaz and he's introduced as a relative. And that's important because of the Leverite system where the relative has to look after you. So let me give you a couple of definitions here. Um, I've defined sovereignty for you. Sovereignty is the fact that God is in control of all things down to the minor details. Let me define the word uh, miracle for you. A miracle is where God is involved in his creation by breaking the laws of nature. So do you understand that God set up the laws of nature? What comes up? must come down. That's a law of nature, right? Um, what you sow, you will reap. There's just certain things that, that happen in nature that he's planned. But he can break those laws because, you know, he's in charge. He's, he's sovereign. And so he can make manna just appear. That's a miracle. He can have someone walk on water. Peter, get out of the boat, walk on the water to me. How do I know I'm not going to sink? Well, I'm in charge. He can make the... the, the storm calm down. That's how we know Jesus is God, because when he's on earth, he's acting like the person who's in charge of everything, because he is. So that's a miracle when he breaks the laws of nature. But here's a third word. This is an important word. It's the word providence. And providence is God's direct involvement in his creation without breaking the laws of nature. It's very simple. So sovereignty is he's involved in everything that happens from the hair that falls out of your head to the sparrow that dies. That's sovereignty. In sovereignty, there's two mechanisms that he uses to be in control. And one of them is through miracles, where he will override what normally happens. But let's face it, that's very rare. Very rare. I mean, it looks like it's happening all the time in the Bible. Yeah, that's because every time it happened, it's recorded in the same book. But think of the hundreds and thousands of years between those miracles. Very rare that God actually breaks the laws of nature. There is another way that is far more common, happening all the time, and yes, yet it is no less amazing, and that is providence. So sovereignty, miracles, and providence. Let's put miracles aside for now because a snapshot of normality, there isn't one, and frankly, in our lives, most of us will go our entire lives without seeing a miracle. And that's okay. That's most of humanity, for most of history, will go their entire lives without seeing a miracle. So let's focus on the mechanism that God uses to provide for us called providence. We've seen, we've seen his law, his revealed law, but here's another one. So in verse 3 it says, She set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And here's a very important word. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, 
who was of the clan of Elimelech. Well, we know that. He's already told us that. And behold, word of surprise, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Yes, we know that already. But the, what the narrator is doing here is he's toying with us. He's being playfully ironic. Remember what Ruth said in chapter 1, verse 12? The most likely scenario that you are going to be taken care of, Ruth, if you come with me, is this. If I should go and say I have no hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it's exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. She says, the most, if you come with me, I'm going to have to meet someone, marry them, have a kid that will then be your husband so you can be taken care of. What are the chances of that? I would have to meet him tonight. I mean, even if I met him tonight, we got married tonight, we conceived tonight, I had twin boys, they were born, are you going to wait around till they're old enough to, to marry? And then, what's the alternative? That's the most likely scenario. That's more likely than we go there and there is a rich, single, relative of mine who has no problem marrying a Moabite. That's impossible. This scenario of me actually finding a husband tonight is more probable than that. And then you get to chapter 2 and the narrator says, lucky for her, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> it just happened to be that the random field that she picks happens to be owned by the one guy in town who is a rich, single, relative of Elimelech who, we know later, has a mother who was a Gentile and doesn't have any problem with Gentile women. And it happened! Lucky for her, right? This bizarre chain of events that Naomi posted was more likely than this happening, and yet this happens? And so that's why we don't believe in luck. This is providence. This is God actively involved in his creation, looking after this one person who has a need, out of his graciousness, using these two mechanisms, the law that he revealed and the people obeying it, and through him ordering events and circumstances in such a way that his will is being accomplished. If she had picked a different field, we would not have the book of Ruth in our Bibles we would also not have King David. <laughs> you know, if she had picked a different... Do you think God leaves this kind of thing up to chance? Do you think him and the angels are like, please let her pick the right field? It's all on black. You know, it's like, come on, Ruth. Yes, she picked the right field. We're going to have a Messiah. <laughs> no. Now, she didn't happen to pick the right field. She picked it by providence. That's what providence is. It means that the things that you do that you think are a random... random a randomized ordering of events is actually God ordering his creation. So that's why Christians don't say luckily, we say providentially. Christians are the only people that say providentially. If, you, if you're at the store, if you're trying to buy something, and they say, oh, providentially I have the exact change, you're like, oh, what church do you go to? <laughs> Nobody says providentially, except Christians. When I was first saved, I said to my... Um, my pastor said he was going to go and do something. He was going to go to some place to evangelize. And I said, oh, good luck. And he said, no, I don't believe in luck. I believe in providence. And I walked away thinking, that is an odd duck. Who says stuff like that? 
what does that even mean? That's just the weirdest thing. And now, years later, I see, uh, of course, like, it's not lucky if you bump into the right person. It's, it's ordained. So luck is a secular concept that there is an impersonal force out there that determines events, randomly, good or bad. But Proverbs 16, verse 33, says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from Yahweh. The lot, you know, short straw, long straw, or tossing dice, you know, trying to figure out something by chance, gambling, and uh, that happens, but every decision from that is from Yahweh. Jonah chapter 1, remember that, Jonah, they're like, whose fault is it that the storm is raging? So the sailors draw lots, and verse 7 says, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil, this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. If the lot had fallen to someone else, some other poor guy would have been swallowed by the fish, and we wouldn't have the book of Jonah in our Bibles. You think God was like, come on, 7-Eleven, you know, like, come on. No, he's not gambling. God does not play dice. The lot falls the way God wants it to fall. Does this sound like a God, a king, who leaves things up to chance? Isaiah 46, verse 9. This is the verse I gave you. People say, how come you came to Mobile? You're from Africa. How did you end up in Mobile? Isaiah 46, verse 9. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. How is God different from everyone else? Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. That's Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 11. I'm a man from a far country. Why am I here? Because God called me here. How do I know that? Because I'm here. That's how providence works. You can't read providence ahead of time. You can only read it retrospectively. So how do you know you're married to the right person? I know some of you might be thinking, if only I'd marry the right person, everything else would be better. No, you did marry the right person. You know how I know? Because you're married to them. You did take the right job, the job God wanted you to take, because you're in it. Now, I'm not saying that circumstances can't change and you can't change your job. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying there's no accidents. There's no mistakes. Wherever you are, even the wrong things that you did, your sinful choices, your foolish choices, even those things, God can work together to accomplish His will. Even the things that you messed up in. Even Elimelech leaving Israel leads to God's will being done. Everything leads to God's will being done because he's in charge of everything. That's sovereignty. How does he do it? Through providence. The ordering of circumstances and events to accomplish his will without breaking the laws of nature. That's providence. And that's what we see in the book of Ruth. Here's another definition. Coincidence. The dictionary says it's a remarkable occurrence of events without an apparent causal connection. A church explodes. Fifteen people are late. Nobody gets hurt. Coincidence? A remarkable occurrence of events without an apparent causal connection. You ask the Christians what happened? They say, God caused it. 
So chance, coincidence, luck, is a secular concept that people use to try to explain things that don't make sense if God doesn't, well, if God doesn't exist, you need some way to explain this. So they come up with chance. So you start looking at, I, I looked up this week some remarkable coincidences, and there's some pretty strange ones. There's this one where this guy um, asks this girl for a telephone number, and so she makes up a random number to give to him, and he's writing it down, he's like, hey, that's my number. <laughs> what are the chances, you know? <laughs> pretty interesting. Anyway, but there, um, one of them was, a remarkable coincidence is the size and distance that the moon is from the earth so that we can have total eclipses. Because if the moon was a, a little bit smaller or a little bit closer, we wouldn't be able to do that. How lucky it is that it just happened to be that way. How lucky is it? I mean, this is what evolutionists do. How lucky is it that there was this random big bang that just turned out that we all appeared? That was lucky. I mean, the chances of that happening were very little. How lucky is it that our little planet ended up the ex exact distance from the sun that we don't freeze to death or boil? Maybe it's getting a little closer this week, but, you know, you never know. Or boil to death and that its axis just happened to be at the exact angle that we can have different seasons, and that the moon ended up at the exact distance so that the tides don't drown us all once a month. I mean, it's just like, man, that's so lucky that all those things happen. What else are you going to say when you see design? It's got to be luck. That's why I think atheists have way more faith than Christians. They need a miracle to explain everything that happens. We just need one. God. He makes it all happen. The Puritan Thomas Watson, trying to explain the concept that even when things look like they're going in the wrong direction, like you've done something bad, God still uses it for good. He says this, the wheels of a watch, you know, picture the, the cogs of a watch turning. The wheels of a watch move contrary to one another, but they all carry on the motion of the watch. So the wheels of providence often move contrary to our desires, but they still carry on God's unchanging decree. So even when things are moving in the opposite direction of what you think they should, that's all part of the mechanism God's using to order the events to accomplish his will. It's just one big footnote before we close. You might be thinking, does this mean I should flip a coin every time I want to make a decision because the lot is up to the Lord? Does this mean I can put all my winnings on the roulette wheel, all my salary every month in the slot machine because God's in charge of... No, that's not... Then you've missed point number one. So point number two is, yes, God's in charge of everything. There's no such thing as luck or chance. Point number one is, he reveals his will to us in his word. And he says, the way I want to provide for you is I want you to work. I want you to work. I want you to have an avenue where you can meet people so you can share the gospel. I want you to have a craft in your life that you can use to the glory of God, that you can use as a witness to others, that you can draw a sense of the worth that I give you. I want you to do that. I don't want you to circumvent that by flipping coins and playing the slot machine. So, just a reminder that the death of Jesus was providence. Not a miracle, if you think about it. Acts 2.23, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Judas sinned, the Romans sinned, the Jews sinned, Pontius Pilate sinned, 
everybody involved on that day was doing the opposite of what they were supposed to be doing from the revealed will of God. And yet, this was still the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And he worked it to save us. And that same providence is at work all the time in your life, despite your mistakes and your sins and the things that people do to you and the things that you do to other people. So next time something happens to you that makes you late, some sort of inconvenience, all the way up to a, a tragedy, remember that we are not victims of chance and randomness. We serve a God who has revealed his will and is working out his will every day in our lives. And we're all under his watchful eye. And he works all things to good through his law and through the involvement of providence. And if you want to know what happens in the rest of the rom-com, you're going to have to come back next week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is with such joy that we are reminded of your sovereignty and your providence. Sometimes in our uh, weakness, we, we crave miracles and we want to see the spectacular. And in doing so, we overlook the amazing and spectacular providence that is around us every day. And the way you have ordered events and the way we meet people and make decisions and how you use all of those things, even the weather, to accomplish your perfect will. So we trust in you and we place our faith in you today and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.